print. All right, good evening, guys. Could you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, verse 1? Romans chapter 16, verse 1. And good evening to our, our Paltark audience. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to begin a study of Romans chapter 16, the 16th and final chapter. And actually, I was telling Titus today, uh, I actually finished off the book. I've actually uh, finished uh, studying the book of Romans. Tomorrow I'll start in on the book of Jonah. So I finished my exegesis and exposition of. Uh, the, the book of Romans, and I started, I guess it was May 2007, May 1st, 2007, and here we are. We'll be finishing the book August 29th, so that's about, what, three years and four months almost, something like that? So that's uh, that's where we're at, and again, we're going to be doing the book of Jonah after we do the book of Romans, and it looks like we're scheduled to do the book of Jonah, unless the rapture happens or the Lord takes me out, <laughs> we're going to go, we're going to do it uh, Tuesday, August 31st is when we'll start the book of Jonah. But again, we're going to uh, begin a study of the book of Romans. And every time we do, do a new chapter in the book of Romans, or any time we're studying a particular book in the Bible and we're going to a new chapter, I always like to do an overview. It gives us a general outline of uh, what the, the chapter has to say. So it's always good to do that. And that's what we'll be doing here this evening, do an overview of Romans chapter 16. I think you're going to like it. It's kind of interesting. There's not a lot of... There's a couple of doctrinal par paragraphs in there. It talks about watching out for false teachers... There's a warning there in a couple of verses, which will be interesting to do. And then uh, he's also talks. He also gives a tremendous, uh, beautiful doxology at the end of uh, at the end of the epistle. So it's uh, there's a couple of doctrinal things in there, but mostly the chapter is about people, and it shows us this chapter is going to show us that uh, the apostle Paul was a people person. And everybody, when they look at the apostle Paul, they think of the apostle Paul as a great. You know, writer of scripture, he wrote over half the New Testament. He evangelized uh, the, the, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, the Roman Empire. He was a tremendous servant of God, but he didn't do it alone. Of course, he'd tell you, as we saw in Romans 15, that it was Christ in him through the Holy Spirit accomplishing his work. But also, Paul had help from other believers. Paul counted on uh, the help of other believers. He couldn't have done what he did in the Roman Empire in the first century if it wasn't for the help of other believers. And a lot of people, uh, uh, there's no, uh, as I've said many times, uh, the Christian way of life, remember we're members of the body of Christ, no man is an island, and any man who, th who teaches the word of God realizes, if he hasn't, he, he better realize it soon enough, that you can do nothing without people who uh, believe in what you do and support the teaching of the word of God and, and believe in the word of God and are, are into it like you are, and you need people like that. And I'm, I'm blessed to have people in my life that are like that. So, that will be our study here this uh, this evening. And we're going to find out, we're going to run into some individuals, and as we go through this chapter, individuals that are unknown to most Christians, and just the uh, names are put here by the Holy Spirit in Romans 16. And this is Paul basically uh, sending out his greetings to people. And these people, he actually talks about, he, he gives brief descriptions of them, but it's really interesting that he, he uh, commends these people. A lot of these people risk their lives for the Apostle Paul, they opened their homes to the Apostle Paul, uh, just like uh, Titus and Jody uh, have done for me. And uh, so this is going to be, uh, I think you'll really enjoy this study. But again, we'll sh it'll show that Paul was quite a people person. And if you're going to be a pastor, a teacher of the Word of God, you inevitably have to be a people person. So let's, uh, let's take a moment of silent prayer as we normally do and uh, apply 1 John 1.9 if necessary. That means we confess our sins to the Father. Why do we have to confess our sins? 
because just uh, you, may, you might say, well, I, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I've already believed, so I got all my sins forgiven, right? Yeah, absolutely. But we're talking about fellowship. And I always like to use the analogy, uh, I'm a Wenstrom. And uh, in the Wenstrom family, if I, as a little boy, didn't do what my mother and father told me, like mow the lawn, and I see uh, Tyler did a great job mowing the lawn there. Good job, buddy. You can, if I had a lawn to mow, I'd have you mow it. But uh, mowing the lawn, and I didn't do it. And that happened sometimes. And uh, basically, I was still in the Wenstrom family, though I had sinned against my father and mother and disobeyed them. So I was out of fellowship, and I had to go to my room. And unless I uh, acknowledged my wrong and then went out and did, if I acknowledged my wrong and then went out and did what he told me to do, uh, then I could have fellowship with him. But if I refused and didn't think I did anything wrong, then I had no fellowship with them. I was still in the Wenstrom family, but I didn't have dinner with them. It was up to the room. So. The same thing in God's family. God has a family, and we all entered into that family through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we sin, we lose fellowship with God, just like I lost fellowship with my mother and father because I didn't mow the lawn and disobeyed them. So uh, when we confess our sins, that means we're... And then we bring our thoughts into obedience to uh, the Spirit, who speaks to us through the Word of God. Then we're going to have fellowship, and we're experiencing that fellowship again. So confession of sin is important to get us back into fellowship with God, we maintain that fellowship by, with God by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us to the teaching of the Word of God. If there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So in the privacy of our very own royal priesthood, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another day of the Word of God to learn about your plan, and to learn about your uh, character and nature and who and what you are and who and what your Son is in the Spirit and what you've done for us through them in the past or doing for us now and will do for us in the future. We thank you, Father, for placing us in union with your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we're crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with him at your right hand and that we know that as we're in fellowship with you, that we're in your presence, that we're seated at your right hand, and help us to help to make that real through the Spirit to us, so that it would uh, it cause our prayer life to be more exciting and more productive, and also, Father, our fellowship as well. Help us to grow in love toward you and each other, and that the Spirit would continue to reveal to us the great power and love that has been directed toward us, and that. Uh, you sent your son to the cross for us when we were your enemies and now that we're in the family of God through faith in your son you're going to freely give us all things we believe that promise in Romans 8.32 and though uh, the circumstances and the, we might go through adversity and undeserved suffering and we might even bring suffering on ourselves through our own bad decisions we know that you'll never leave us or forsake us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Other people might disown us, but we know that you never will. And we thank you, Father, for your unconditional love. And make that real uh, love real to us more and more each day. Father, we thank you for 
the, the Thompsons for allowing us in their household to teach the Word of God. And we thank you for those who might be listening on Paltalk at this time and other parts of this country and the world and those who might be viewing this class or listening to it at a later date on the website. And we just pray, Father, that you would uh, continue, uh, that uh, all of us would receive our necessary spiritual nourishment, Father, that every, each one of us would pay, have objectivity and humility and sensitivity to what the Spirit will be saying to us through the teaching of the Word of God. Give grace to the communicator, Father. Empower him to deliver your full counsel to your people so that they are ministered to, so that they're built up and edified and instructed in righteousness. And we just pray, Father, that also your Son, Jesus Christ, and yourself will be lifted up and glorified, and that with one voice we might glorify and praise you, Father, and give you worshipful thanksgiving for who and what you are, who and what your Son is and the Spirit, and what you have done for us in the past, are doing for us now, and will do for us in the future. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alright, this evening, as I said before, we're going to begin a study of the 16th and final chapter of the book of Romans. And we're going to do this by presenting an overview of this chapter. Now, it's interesting, not only does Romans 16 complete this epistle, but also it completes the seventh major section in the book of Romans. And this seventh major section began in Romans 15, 14. Now, the seven major sections of the book of Romans are, the first, are composed of the following. First of all, we have the first section is the introduction. We saw that in Romans 1, verses 1 through 17, we have an introduction and a presentation uh, of the theme of the epistle. It's interesting, in this introduction, as we get toward the end of, when we get to the doxology at the end of Romans 16, many of the themes that Paul uh, presents to us in his introduction in chapter 1, he echoes in chapter 16, kind of pulling the whole epistle together. So in the first, first section of the book of Romans, we had the introduction and the presentation of the theme of the epistle, was, which was what? The righteousness of God, which is revealed in the person of Christ and also through the presentation of the gospel, and that this gospel is, uh, is being uh, uh, pro propagated and uh, presented to both Jew and Gentile. God is calling a people out for himself, composed not only of Jewish believers, but also Gentile believers. And this was predicted in the Old Testament, that Gentile believers would come to a saving knowledge of, 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 through faith, and life, faith alone and Christ alone, but that they, the mystery was that they would be joint ears with Jewish believers, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. So that's, the theme, that's where the theme and the introduction are of the epistle in the first 17 verses of chapter 1. Then we get to the we start getting into his uh, uh, that begins the main uh, verses sixteen and seventeen of chapter one actually begin Paul's main argument which closes in Romans fifteen thirteen what is the main argument it's the presentation of what the gospel is so if you want to know what the gospel is it's conveyed in those chapters now in Romans one eighteen all the way to Romans three nineteen we see that Paul says that both Jew and Gentiles are in need of the righteousness of God. That means the entire human race is guilty before a holy God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we can see the progression of Paul's argument. First of all, he shows that everyone is in need of the righteousness of God. And when we derive from, before he even tells them how to get saved and receive the righteousness of God, he tells them that everybody, both Jew and Gentile, is guilty before a holy God. And it doesn't matter how moral 
moral you are and you don't measure up to God's perfect holy standards. Only Jesus Christ did who is the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, the God-man. So we see that in Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3.19 Paul says that both Jew and Gentiles are in need of the righteousness of God. So the application is for us is that we people you got to pray that people with uh, unbelievers will see their need. Because they're not going to go and turn to you and listen to the gospel if they haven't first seen their need. And only God can show them their need. And He can do that through circumstances, whether adversity or prosperity. Uh, he can use both. So we need to uh, understand that and keep that in mind. Ask the people that are unsaved in your life, ask God to show them their need for the Savior. And then when we get to the third major section of the epistle, that's in Romans 3.20 all the way to Romans 5.21. And that's where Paul shows us how to receive the righteousness of God. You're not righteous and I'm not righteous in ourselves. We receive the righteousness of God as a gift. We don't have it. We're not inherently righteous. And God is. So he gives this righteousness as a gift through faith in his Son. On, based upon the object of our faith, the merits of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, we receive that righteousness. Then we have, once we re know how to receive the righteousness of God, not by keeping the works of the law, but uh, keeping the Mosaic law, or keeping the Ten Commandments, or keeping the Sabbath. No, what you get it is you get it through faith alone and Christ alone. And we see that once that happens, Paul goes another step further. Now, how do we live in the righteousness of God? Well, he teaches us how to live in the righteousness of God in the fourth major section of the book of Romans. That's in, in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. And it tells us, uh, he tells us about our position in Christ. We're crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. Romans 6, uh, chapter 6 teaches us of our position in Christ. Romans 7, 1 through 6 says that we're married to Christ. And then verses 7 through 25 of chapter 7 is autobiographical and it shows how Paul as a Christian tried to, uh, to please God by keeping the law without the power of the Spirit. And then when you get to Romans chapter 8, he gives us the, 21, uh, the 14 affirmations of the Holy Spirit we studied. And then at the close of that chapter, he tells us of our ultimate victory uh, that we have through Jesus Christ. Then we have the fifth major section, which many people don't think is a, it's a, almost an intercalation, but it's not. It's, it's very much connected to the first uh, four sections. The fifth major section of Romans we saw is 9, 10, and 11. That's where God says, uh, Paul says that God's righteousness is vindicated in his relationship to Israel. So as we saw at the end of chapter 8, Paul says to the church, both Jew and Gentile believers, that nothing can separate them from the love of God. Well, what about Israel? Because it looks like God has forsaken Israel. He's abandoned Israel. And as we saw in 9, 10, and 11, those chapters, God didn't abandon Israel. Israel abandoned God. God evangelized Israel. They rejected Him throughout his, uh, her, uh, their history. And only a remnant has believed in Christ as Savior. So we see that God was vindicated in His relationship with Israel. Israel was at fault, not God. And so, therefore, God can be counted on. He will never abandon us because we've obeyed Him and believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then the sixth major section of the book of Romans, which actually closes the main argument of the epistle, is found in chapters 12, uh, 13, 14, and also Romans 15, 1 through 13. And that's where we see that the righteousness of God is manifested 
through believers in Jesus Christ, the spiritual life. He teaches us the things that we learn in chapter 6, 7, and 8 are talk about what God has done for us and the power available to us through the Spirit and the Word. And then when he gets to chapters 12, 13, 14, and Romans 15, 1 through 13, he, said, he shows us how we utilize that power and that position in Christ, how to live in the righteousness of God. And then we have finally cha uh, the seventh major section of the book of Romans, which we're going to uh, actually continue. Uh, actually, we're going to, Romans 16 actually completes that seventh major section, of course, that begins in Romans 15, 14, and of course it ends with Romans 16, 27. And in this section, Paul discusses his ministry to the Gentiles, his intention to visit Rome. He actually uh, tells the Romans in chapter 16 about Phoebe, welcome her, put yourselves at her disposal. She's the one who's actually going to deliver this epistle, just imagine that. And then we see he gives greetings to people he knew in Rome. He sends his greetings, and then of course he has some warning about warnings about false teachers, namely the Judaizers, and then he closes, he says, he, uh, he, the people who were with him, like Timothy, give their greetings to the Romans, and then he closes with a doxology of praise of God for his great plan. Now, the, it's interesting, in Romans 16, the number of greetings that appear in Romans 16, verses 3 through 15, is substantially more than that which is in his other epistles. This is a, this is a huge, huge epistle. I mean, it dwarfs uh, uh, many of them. Uh, first and Second Corinthians are, are pretty extensive, like Romans, uh, a lot of material. But Romans has a greater amount of greetings. It's very interesting. And I think Paul does that, and I know Paul does that, one of the reasons why, is to show some kind of uh, connected to the Romans. Remember, he hasn't seen them yet. He hasn't met them. So he's trying to get some kind of common ground. They, the people he's sending greetings to in Romans 16 are individuals Paul knew and that, and that the Romans knew because they're already there in Rome, these people. So he's trying to get a bond or some kind of common ground and connection because when he gets there, remember, he wants to solicit their help financial, materially, to go evangelize Spain. And he wants that fellowship with them. He's heard about them. But we know that he's trying to, by sending greetings to these people who he knew, He's trying to set up some kind of common ground. We have these people in common. So we know these people. You Both you, Romans, and myself, Paul. Now in chapter 16, Paul, it's interesting, he names 35 individuals, eight of which were with Paul in Corinth when he wrote this epistle, and the others that are in Rome. It's also seven women are named and 28 men. Seven women are named and 28 men. So women were very much a part of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And of course, the Apostle Paul used women who are as uh, in his ministry. It's interesting, some people think that Paul, the criticism laid at Paul's feet because he, uh, he would not let uh, women become pastors. He forbid it under the Spirit. Uh, they say that Paul had a thing, uh, had a thing, a problem against women. And there's actually some scholars that actually say that Paul was a homosexual. There's actually some liberal scholars actually say that because he says that women can't be pastors and they can't have authority over guys and that women should be uh, quiet and let their husbands ask the questions and stuff. Uh, like in Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and stuff like that. So Paul, he didn't have anything against women. He did not degrade women. His teaching did not degrade women. In fact, Christianity, the, the Pauline epistles, elevate women. And we know that because the women that were involved in Paul's ministry, extensively in his ministry, they had a big part in his ministry. He mentions two in Philippians. 
uh, remember in Philippians, he talks about those Iodia uh, and Syntyche, and he talks about them, that they were working for the gospel. So Paul didn't have a thing against women. He didn't have any bitterness toward women, and he wasn't a homosexual, and he didn't have, his teaching wasn't belligerent toward women. That's a bunch of baloney. Usually people who are, uh, have negative volition of the Word of God, I repeat, negative volition of the Word of God, have contwisted that about Paul, and say things like that about Paul. Now Paul also, not only does he mention seven women and 28 men, but he refers to two households and three house churches and also other unnamed individuals. Now the names of these individuals are Gentile. Remember the, the Roman church was primarily Gentile. There were some Jews, of course. So the names in chapter 16 are Gentiles and that reflects the population in Rome that it was mainly Gentile. And some of these individuals that Paul acknowledges are slaves. And some of them are freedmen and freed women. Now, uh, we, we, we miss that because in our, our time, in our day and age here in America in the 21st century, we don't have slavery. Well, back then, uh, back then there was slavery. Roman in, in, in the Roman Empire, slavery was a major institution. It was a major institution, and it didn't, fall, it didn't go away until centuries later because of the spread of the gospel. The spread of the gospel actually uh, got into the heart of the Roman Empire so that slave owners, because of Christianity, were freeing their slaves. But in the first century, that hadn't taken place, and we see that Paul was actually mentioning slaves here in chapter 16. Now in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul's going to commend to the Christians, the Roman Christians, a sister in the Lord named Phoebe, who's actually going to deliver this epistle. So look at Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul says, I commend to you our, our sister... Uh, you, uh, you uh, we commend to you our sister Phoebe, or as we can pronounce it, Phoebe is two different ways to pronounce it. I'll call, I'll just, I'll pronounce it Phoebe, which is the English way. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sencrea. Now it's interesting; she's a servant. She's a servant of the church, not just Paul, but she serves others. And that remember Christianity. Uh, promoted service. Uh, Jesus Christ was a servant of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 42 and 43 talks about, in 52 and 53, talks about the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord. And Jesus Christ set the example for his flock. And so Phoebe was a great believer because she served the, the church. Not herself, not her own ambitions, but the Lord's ambitions, what the Spirit wanted, she was a servant of the church, which is at Sancria. And then he says why he wants them to, he commends her to them. That you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. That means open up your homes to her. See, a lot of people like to claim, the, a lot of Christians today like to claim the doctrine of privacy, and that's just because, and they do it to justify the fact that they're selfish and they're afraid to open up their lives to other people. And the church did that. They, they absolutely depended on hospitality. Because many times they were persecuted, they were refugees, and they needed the help of other Christians who had homes and that did have the means to uh, help them, like itinerant preachers. Uh, John 3 talks about that, that you're supposed to welcome these itinerant preachers and welcome in a manner worthy of the Lord and send them on their ways. So that means helping them out, giving them food, shelter, clothing, sending them on their way. That's what the early first century church did. 
And so we, he says, I want you to receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Meaning, love. I want you to show love to her. And love means that you have to get... You, you know, a lot of Christians say, I love you impersonally, unconditionally. Well, God's love also is affectionate, as we saw. There's the phileo uh, love, which, uh, and there's the agapal love. But either way you slice, slice it, uh, the, the, the God's love will be affectionate, of course, and it will show affection to members of the body of Christ. We study that in Romans chapter 12. So he says in verse 1, I commend you, our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sancria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. And that, don't, that means don't let her get a hotel. Back in the ancient world, it was not a bad. It was a bad idea because it was a, many times houses of ill repute. They didn't. They couldn't go to a uh, what's that? Uh, what's something? Else? They couldn't go to a Holiday Inn. Okay, they couldn't go to a Motel Six or whatever it's called. They didn't have that back then. They and they absolutely depended upon hospitality of the citizens of a particular city. And this is what this goes back to the days of Abraham and uh, remember him and Lot. Uh, we saw in Genesis, in our study of Genesis, this, uh, this hospitality uh, of the people of God goes back to Abraham, the father of our faith. And so he, sa he says to the Roman believers about Phoebe, he wants them to receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever she may have need of you. Mean, put yourselves at her disposal. Whatever she needs from you, give it to her. And then he says, why? He gives the reason why. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Now in Romans 16, chapters three, uh, chapter 16, verses 3 to 15, Paul urges the Roman Christians to greet various individuals of their number. And then in this A part of verse 16, he urges them to greet one another. And then in the B part of chapter 16, and also in verses 21 and 23, he sends greetings to the Roman Christians from others. Now look at verse 3. He says, greet Prisca. Uh, some of the translations say Priscilla. Uh, from my, uh, it's actually, from my uh, research of it in the original, it should be Prisca. And then we have Aquila. Uh, they were actually a couple. There's uh, some couples mentioned here. They were a great couple, and we'll talk about them Sunday. Uh, in our uh, service Sunday, I believe it will be Sunday, and uh, we'll talk about these two individuals, what a great Christian couple they were. So Greek Prisca and Aqu uh, Aquila, they're there in Rome, and uh, they're Jewish believers. He says, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, they were working, giving their time, talent, and treasure for the gospel. That's what they were doing. And listen to what he says, who for my life risked their own necks, that means they were willing to put their lives on the line. They could be killed. They could have been killed. But it doesn't go into details how that could have happened. He, in the book of Acts, we don't really. It doesn't give us any information uh, in what way they did risk their life for Paul. But we do know from Paul that at some point in his ministry, they risked their lives. What a, they, that means. They had the love of God. No, no greater love that, that man has than this. And he lays down his life for his brothers. Jesus taught that, right? And so I think Jim Ricard, Pastor Jim Ricard, has been teaching on that passage. So he, they did that. They practiced Christian love. They were willing to risk their lives for another believer. And they say, and Paul says, they did it for me. They were willing to risk their lives for me. So that tells you these believers did not care for themselves. They believed what Jesus said and, and applied it. Uh, he who loves his life shall lose it. They took up their cross daily and followed Jesus. Even it meant 
that they would have to give their lives. And then he says, to whom, not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. See, if Paul died, the Gentile churches would suffer. Paul had not finished his plan, the plan of God for his life, and God used people like Prisca and Aquila, this couple, to keep Paul alive until he had done everything he had to do and, and for the Gentile churches. Then he says in verse 5, Also, greet the church that is in their house. Now, the, uh, the, right there, it tells us that churches in the first century, they did not meet in these big buildings. And I've become more and more, and I've been talking to, we've been talking about this, uh, uh, Titus and I, but it's becoming more and more clear to me that churches today, not all of them, but a good many of them, are getting too caught up in the building, they're too getting caught up on the externals and how they look, rather than their character and their, and their interest and their positive volition to the Word of God. The early first century met in homes. And these big churches that we talk about, these mega churches, which is a, quite a bit of topic of conversation among Bible scholars and Bible teachers today. I don't believe that that's the way God wanted these things to happen. I don't believe He believes in these mega churches. I don't think you can minister to all these people in these mega churches. It's ridiculous. They would meet in homes. You know, there's no way that one man can minister to 25,000 people. That is not the way. Hey, look at the early first century church. Remember the 3,000 got saved from Peter's thing? How many apostles were teaching? Eleven, right? Remember Judas had died? So they were ministering to these people and they had they chose seven deacons, Acts chapter 6. So they broke it up. They didn't try to... One man, Peter, didn't minister to over 3,000 people every day. 3,000 got saved from his evangelistic message. But when they had to teach them the spiritual life... They broke up into smaller groups. They met in homes. So the idea of these big churches came much later when Christianity had been accepted by uh, the Roman Empire. Constantine gave an edict to that Christianity was now the, 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 the nation's religion. And so the, the national religion. And that's when it started going downhill. That's when you see the big ecclesiastical organizations. And then they started drifting away further and further from the word of God. It says that right in church history. And uh, we, all you have to do is read church history. So this, it says right here, that verse 5, that Prisca and Aquila, this couple, not only risked their lives and were fellow workers in Christ Jesus with Paul. And that uh, he gave thanks to uh, for them to the Father. And all the churches of the Gentiles did as well, but also he says, greet the church that is in their house. So they met in homes. They met in homes, and there's nothing wrong with a house church. And that's actually, you're able to minister better to people that way, I believe, because you get more of a one-on-one. -on -one. I've talked to some people who have uh, that have uh, that have come to hear me teach, and they was in a church that like had 10,000 people, and they said they felt lost in that church. Well, yeah, no wonder. You know, you lost in the shuffle. But when they were in our church, they felt like there was a more personal connection. And you can get involved in people's lives uh, when you have a small little group. So uh, I know a lot of pastors... Uh, it's an ego thing. I'll tell you right now. It's an ego thing. It's something that pastors have to battle. And uh, it, your, the numbers doesn't t reflect the fact that you're successful. Uh, and either that you have small numbers. That doesn't mean you're successful because you have three people following you. And neither does it mean that you're successful because you have 10,000 people following you. What makes you successful as a pastor is that you did what the Lord told you to do. You were faithful. 
Okay? So whether there's 10,000 people or three people, it doesn't really matter. The, what matters is that you are faithful in carrying out the task that God gave you. So he says, Greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinetus, uh, Epinetus, excuse me, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. That was his distinction. Then he says in verse 6, Greet Mary, he says, who has worked hard for you, the Roman believers. Greet Andronicus, greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen. That doesn't mean I looked at this uh, expression. I used to think that, in fact, the NIV makes it sound like that they're his, his family members. It has nothing to do. He's, they're not his family members. It means that they're Jewish. So that means that they're Jewish Christians. When he says, my kinsmen, that's how he uses it in the rest of the book of Romans, this word for kinsmen in the original. It talks about the fact that they're Jews just like him. So he says, he says greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, my fellow Jews. And listen what he says. And my fellow prisoners. They suffered, they suffered with Paul. They identified with Paul. Let me tell you something. There's nothing, you know, when, there's nothing greater, uh, you, never show your, you never demonstrate your friendship more than when a, another Christian is suffering that you're willing to suffer with them. There's something great about that. It shows a great character when you're willing to suffer along with another Christian, uh, whether it's another pastor or another teacher of the Word of God. When you suffer along with them as they go through different trials and tribulations, you show your loyalty. So these people, Andronicus and Junius, Paul's fellow Jewish Christians, they didn't run when trouble came. They were willing to, when Paul got imprisoned, they were willing to sit there in shackles as well. When they was thrown, when he was thrown in a prison cell, they were willing to go with him. They were willing to identify with him. Remember, we studied in Romans chapter 12 and in the, last night and in the past, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That means to identify with them. Not just when things are going well, but when things are going bad. And there's nothing that shows your loyalty, your love, love for the Lord and your fellow believers, when you're willing to suffer along with them. And I thank God for the people who have been willing to suffer along with me. We haven't got thrown into prison yet, but you never know. So then he goes on to say, who are, they're outstanding among the apostles. They were, that means they were well known among the other apostles who were also in Christ before me. So these two individuals, Andronicus and Junius, were actually believers before Paul was. Then he says in verse 8, Grant Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. And it's interesting, uh, we see that again, he's talking about workers. People, when he talks about somebody who's worker in Christ, a fellow worker, that means they give of their time, to the gospel, their talent, that's their spiritual gift, and any other talents that are not their spiritual gift, natural talents, and they give their treasure, their finances, and they also their truth. They're willing to give of themselves for the gospel. So these people were, as I told you before, Paul didn't do it alone. You know, Paul wasn't what they call a super duper saint. <clears throat> he had help. Christ in him and the power of the Spirit, and also he had other believers who had Christ in them with the power of the Spirit. And with these little, this little group, he was able to turn the Roman Empire upside down. So he says in verse 9, Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, he greets more individuals. He says, Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. <coughs> Aristobulus was uh, evidently, when we get there, was a famous Roman. 
<coughs> so when he says the household, those who are of the household of Aristobulus, more than likely he's talking about people, born again Christians, that were slaves that belonged to this household. That's what he's referring to. Let me just get a shot of water here. I'm getting over my cold. Oh, that? Uh, maybe, yeah, you can give me that. But I'll probably, hopefully I don't suck it down and die of a, you know, through my windpipe. You think it's a good idea? And this might be all right. All right. So he says in verse 10, Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. You ready to do the Heimlich maneuver in case I suck it down my windpipe? Then he says in verse 11, Greet uh, Herodian, my kinsman, another fellow Jew. Greet those of the household of Narcissus. Narcissus was another famous individual who are in the Lord. They're believers. And so we see that there's a couple of households. That means that they're talking about slaves here. They, they may say they're of the household of a certain individual. That means that they were uh, serving in that household. It means that they, it denotes that they were slaves. And of course it could be talking about people who are actually family members of this individual. Then he says in verse 12, Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, again, workers in the Lord. Workers in the service of the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Notice again, he actually, he, he says, he acknowledges these people who were doing the work of the ministry. And what does this tell us? These people were not spectators. You go into some churches, and every church has them, every church has them, it's they sit there, and it's only a small few that are doing the work. Only the small few that are doing the work, and, and pretty much... Every ministry you walk walk into, because most people are spectators. It's rather I'd rather watch somebody do the work and you know be a part of the ministry, or let somebody take that job, let somebody take that job. I just want to sit here and be entertained. Well, you know what? That Paul wouldn't acknowledge you. He wouldn't commend you. He would think that you're. He would think that you're a lazy believer and a ungrateful believer, and a believer who's not operating in love. Because if you love the body of Christ and the Lord. You'll serve the body of Christ. Service is what it's all about. And this is what Paul... Remember what Paul says at the beginning of this epistle? And he says it at the beginning of all of his epistles to identify himself. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. What does a slave do? Does he get waited on? No, he waits on other people. He serves other people. <coughs> That's what he did. And this is what these individuals who say... Uh, who he commends as working hard in the Lord, they did that. They understood... What Christian that Christian service was a great honor. Then he says in verse 13, he says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. His mother and mine. That means his mother treated Paul like her own son. Imagine that. She just can pitch it. Paul's over the house. Paul has done the heart, you know, teaching the gospel. He walks into this man's house, Rufus, and Rufus's mother says, Hey, we got lasagna tonight, the Apostle Paul. And Apostle Paul goes, Really good, lasagna. And then, you know, she waits on him. You know, I, it's a, let me give you a good example. I remember uh, years ago, I used to date this girl. She was a Lebanese girl. And her name was Marianne. And she, her mother was right off the boat, Lebanese, right? But the great thing about her, her mother, mother treated, like I was, treated me like I was her son. And when it was time to eat, Oh my gosh, you used to have... i never seen anything like it. They, 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 they throw everything together. There was chicken, there was lasagna. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to turn about, gain about 50 pounds. But she treated me like I was, her, you know, I was her own son. And that's what Paul was being treated by Rufus' mother. 
pretty interesting. It's, and it, look at that. I mean, it, it just shows you, it kind of gives you an intimate portrait of the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? it kind of, you can kind of see that Apostle Paul wasn't this stuffy theologian. He was somebody who was out there with the people. And I can just imagine, you know, Rufus' uh, mother shows Paul to the bed, you know, his bedroom, and you know the bed's all made up. You need you need any warm milk before you go to bed, Paul. You know stuff like that. You want a glass of water before you go. You want a Hall's mental lictus if you have a sore throat, Paul. <laughs> so you can just imagine this is what Paul. This is the kind of treatment that Paul received. And let me tell you something. Paul was honored by these people because he taught the word of God. He was honored by these people. These people knew who they had in their presence and they treated him with respect. Look at it says in verse 14. Greet Asyncritus and Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And then he says in verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Whoop, hold on. What does he mean by that? Does he mean literally a holy kiss? Yes, that was what they did in the first century. Today, we don't do that. In Western culture, we we might give a hug if we're really close to them. Uh, kisses, I'm sorry, I, I'm not kissing another guy. I'm sorry, but that we don't do that out here. I'm not going to go up to Tyler and give him a kiss on the cheek like the French do, you know. You know, like, you know, I can just imagine walking in and giving Tyler, Oh, hi, Tyler, so you don't... You know, give me a kiss. Ah, we don't do that. But you know, if you go into other parts of the world, you go over in the Middle East, they're still kissing on each other's cheek. It's, now, it's, it's accepted in that culture. In Paul's day, that's what they did. It was accepted into their culture to give a holy kiss. And a holy kiss means it's a kiss that's reserved for believers. It's a, it's a, it's a kiss that is, uh, is sanctified. It's not, it has nothing to do with any eroticism at all, of course. And so we see that he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And our day and age, we would shake hands or give a hug, something like that. Now, he then goes on to say, not only does he say in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss, but he says, all the churches of Christ greet you. Now stop and think about that. Why is Paul saying that? All the churches of Christ greet you? That means from Jerusalem to Illyricum. All the way, Jerusalem to Rome. All the churches that Paul started, they were giving their greetings to the Roman church. You know why Paul was doing that? Because he wanted the Roman church to be connected to all the other churches. He didn't start the Roman church. What he's trying to do is he's trying to connect them all together. He's saying, oh, imagine when this letter's read and then the Romans would go, oh wow, all the other churches throughout the Roman Empire are giving their greetings to us. They gave, they put that, Paul did that to serve as a connection between all the churches. To show them that they're not alone. That they're, they have other people who are like-minded, just like them, that love the Lord. Now, in the next part of chapter 16, that we're going to peruse briefly, like we did the other two sections, is verses 17 through 19, where Paul warns the Roman Christians about false teachers. Now, this is a, uh, this is a very interesting passage. Look at Romans 16, 17. Romans 16, 17. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Now, who is he talking about? He describes them a little bit. Look at verse 18. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. 
It, what he's actually talking is about the Judaizers. Remember who made a big thing about what you eat and what you drink? And that's what he's referring to when he says their own appetites. And look, he says, And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So he's warning, actually, in context, about the Judaizers, who try to uh, actually get Gentile Christians to go under the law. Remember the first church council? Acts 15, they said you got to get circumcised. Well, the church council said no. And so we saw that the dog Paul, Galatians, he had addressed the problems of the Judaizers. The, Judea, the Galatian believers, that church, was deceived by the Judaizers. So that's what he's talking about. But there's an application, of course, that we can derive. We don't have the Judaizers running around today. I mean, there are people who actually push the law and everything and the Sabbath and all those things. But uh, we see that we are to keep an eye out on those who cause the dissensions and divisions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which we've learned. So we need to be aware of that and, uh, and, and be uh, on the lookout. We need to be discerning. Okay? Because there are false teachers out there. And how do you know a false teacher? How do you know a false teacher? By what he teaches. So for you to understand that, you've got to know your Bible too. If you don't know your Bible, then you have the Holy Spirit, but if you don't learn the Bible, the Holy Spirit can't help you. The Holy Spirit's only... If you learn the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will, t will point out to you that this person is a false teacher. John talks about false teachers, 1 John chapter 4. He warns people about that. In fact, hold your place. Look at 1 John chapter 4. And some believers, they're so naive, they'll, let, they'll listen to anybody. They'll, turn, they'll listen to the television. A guy teaches you can lose your salvation. Uh, if there's somebody in your... If you see somebody in your church teaching you can lose your salvation, you hear them saying something, you should, well, you should keep your eye out for them and you should tell your pastor about them. They should, false, that's a false doctrine that can be very, very dangerous to the life of a church. Uh, teaching that. Or that Jesus is not God. That's false doctrine. The Bible teaches He's God. Uh, you know, you, that you can't, you don't have to confess your sins. That's a bad, that's a bad thing to teach because how are Christians going to be getting restored to fellowship when they sin? If you're teaching they don't have to confess their sins. That's false doctrine. And if you don't know your Bible, you're wide open for deception. You're wide open for deception. John talks about these false teachers. Look at John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. That means every viewpoint out there in the world. But test the spirits. How? According to the Word of God. So the more you learn the Word of God, the more you'll be able to discern what's good and evil. And so, in fact, hold your place right there. Look at back it up and do, go to Hebrews. I want to show you something real quick. It's connected to that before we read on. Look at, you know, look at Hebrews chapter 5. Look at verse 11. Hopefully you held your place in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to show you real quickly Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning Him, Jesus Christ, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers of what? The Word of God. Not a pastor, but you should be able to help instruct other Christians. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. There's something wrong with you in your hearing and your heart when you've hit, sat under the Bible teaching for a long time, five years, ten years, 
and you have still don't know your Bible, that means you're not applying yourself to the task of learning your Bible. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to fall for false doctrine. Then he says, verse 13, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. Meaning, you can't go into depth in the word of God. That's what he means by milk. Okay? For he is an infant, a spiritual infant. Now look what he says. But solid food, getting into the word of God in depth like we have in Romans, is for the mature, who because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Notice that learning the word of God gives you discernment as to what is good and evil. Now look at 1 John chapter 4. Because when 1 John chapter 4, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits. So how do you test the spirits? According to your knowledge of the word of God. To see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The, uh, the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, they reject Jesus Christ as being God. They don't believe He's equal to God. That He's the Son of God having the same attributes as the Father and the Spirit. In fact, a cult, you always can tell, doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man. They, they don't believe in the Trinity. They'll think that the Spirit, many times, is a thing or a force. That's another way you can tell a cult. Now look at it, it says in verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is from God, that is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it already is in the world. You are from God, he says, little children, and have overcome them, the false prophets, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They, the false prophets, are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world, the cosmic system of Satan. And the world listens to them. We're from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. The apostles. And the apostles' writings are in the New Testament. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now go back to Romans chapter 16 verse 17. Romans chapter 16 verse 17. So Paul says, now I urge you. He's being adamant here. He's very, he can't emphasize this enough. It's very important he's saying here. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And turn away from them. Basically, they reject the teaching of the word of God. Avoid them. Avoid them. If they're rejecting the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, that's what he's saying. If they keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching they learned from their pastors and turn away from them. Why? For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. They'd rather keep the dietary regulations of the law than serve Jesus Christ. And that meaning they'd rather do externals Rather, worship God with externals rather than by the spirit and truth. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. It's so funny that Christians, they'll listen to every... I listen to some Christians, they don't know the word of God, and they go and they listen... Some of the people they tell me they listen to are wolves in sheep's clothing. Nice, good-looking guys, 
and they great speech. They never stumble over their words. Great diction. They put me to shame. But you know what? They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And they don't care about you. They care about making a buck. And you know that because they've got their mansions and they live in there. They've got their big, nice, fancy suits, $1,000 suits. And they got a couple of Mercedes. These people are all about the money. And they are... People think, oh, they're nice. He's a nice person. He's a nice guy. I like his wife. His wife comes out with him. She's beautiful. Ooh, I like her. She actually teaches well. Oh, yeah? Well, if she's teaching, and that means she's in violation of the Word of God because the Bible says, that Paul says, that I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over me. Ooh, you see, Pastor Bill, you're going against the... You're, built, you're, you're beating women up, Bill. You're beating women up. I don't care. I don't care. I'm not beating women up. I love women. Give me a break. I love my mother. I love my sister. So, he, people are so stupid. No discernment. Because they're looking at the appearance. Oh, he's a nice, handsome guy. Oh, he's very distinguished. Yeah. Meanwhile, he teaches you could lose your salvation. Meanwhile, he writes a book. Okay? Oh, he put a book out. It's on the bestseller list. Yeah, but the book never mentions Jesus Christ at all. I mean, talk about somebody who's afraid, afraid to mention the cross of Christ. He's ashamed of it. He's ashamed of the gospel. Paul, I read my Bible, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, these wolves in sheep's clothing, don't go by appearances, discern their teaching. But a lot of Christians, and it's becoming more and more prevalent that we're in the days of apostasies. They want their ears tickled. Paul warned us about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. They're not willing to put the work in to know their Bibles and study their Bibles. Just give me the dog and pony show. Give me a nice, sweet 20-minute message on Sunday, and I'm out of here, and I can do what I want. Well, you know what? You are not going to glorify God. And I don't care. You can sit there and justify yourself, and all you want, when you stand before Christ at the Bema Seat, you have failed. Because you're not willing to put the work in, and therefore you're open to deception and false teaching. And you know what? If you reject the truth, God hands you over to the lie, because God only can give you truth. But if you reject His word, there's nothing else for God to give you. And now look what He says in verse 19. And this tells us the Roman believers, this statement here in verse 19, tells us the Roman believers were great believers that they were doing everything that Paul taught them in the main argument of the epistle. He says in Romans 16, 19, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, he says, I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise, he says, in what is good, which of the plan of God, and the will of God, and innocent in what is evil. So basically he's saying, I want you to have discernment. Okay, Don't be gullible. Don't be gullible. Always, like we saw John says, test the spirits. Test people's viewpoints. That doesn't sound like it's according to the Word of God. You always got to remember, you always got to test everything by the Word of God. Now look at, and now in, uh, when we move further here, because we're coming near the end of, the, of, the, uh, of our overview, in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the A part, Paul assures the Roman believers of their ultimate, final spiritual victory over Satan. And actually... As we'll see, it's their present victory over Satan that they can have uh, when they obey the Spirit and the teaching of the Word of God. And then in the B part of verse 20, he prays that the grace of God will be manifested among them. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, The God of peace, or as we saw 
uh, last evening, the God who produces peace, the Holy Spirit, will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's not talking, the context has nothing to do with the second advent of Christ when Satan's finally uh, defeated and thrown into prison and then he's, it doesn't even refer to the god bay god rebellion where Christ puts down. It's actually talking about something that we can have now. We can have now. What's the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. Well, the Spirit, when we apply the sword, when we use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, Satan is crushed. Okay? So he's saying the God who produces peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's saying that you can experience victory over Satan now in time. Then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now in verses 21 through 23, Paul sends his greetings to the Roman Christians from his companions, those who were with Paul. Remember, Paul wrote the Roman epistle in 57 AD from Corinth. Who was with him? Well, he tells us. He says in Romans 16, 21, Timothy, my fellow worker greets you. What a great man he was. You, Paul mentions him all over his epistles. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so does Lucius and Jason and Sisypater, my kinsmen. Again, they're Jewish believers as well when he says my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. What is he talking about? I thought Paul wrote this. Well, in the first century, the people who composed letters... They used what we call an amanuensis. They had somebody who was like a secretary. And they took down dictation from Paul. And this is what this Tertius is saying. Paul allowed Tertius to throw his name in there and send greetings to them. This is what he did. And then Paul would sign the letter at the end. Then he says in verse 23, Gaius, host to me, that's where he's staying, at Gaius' house in Corinth, and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. He's an individual who had a big position in Corinth. He was the city treasurer. He handled the city's finances. So that means the gospel had gotten to the, the, the upper echelons of the Corinthian government. And Corinth was a major, major city in the Roman Empire. And also he sends greetings, uh, Cordus, Cordus the brother, sends greetings as well to the Roman believers. So these men were with Paul. Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sisypter, Tertius, who was the amanuensis, who wrote this, who was the secretary, who copied down this dictation of the epistle. And then Gaius, Paul was staying with him in Corinth, and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greet you. And Cordus, the brother. Now in verse 24, that verse, if you notice in your Bibles, many of your Bibles, it's in brackets. That means it doesn't appear in the original autograph. A copyist thought it, was, it should have been in there, and a lot of times the copyists of these the original manuscripts, uh, they didn't do it uh, uh, to uh, cause a problem or evil intentions. They didn't do it with evil intentions. Many times they thought it was should have been inserted because they read the epistle and they thought, oh, maybe it should be in here. It seems like it should, and he left it out. And that's not the case. So the, the, the it's in brackets because it's not in the original. And then we have the closing, the doxology of the epistle. Uh, in verses 25 through 27, Paul uses a doxology, and a doxology uh, is actually a brief ascription of praise to members of the Trinity. Here it's a, a praise to the Father for his plan of salvation. Doxologies were commonly employed in various parts of the New Testament. They were employed in the salutation of epistles, opening thanksgiving, uh, final exhortations as we have here in Romans chapter 16, and also in closings. Now look at Romans 16.25 and we'll close. Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So he says, Now to him who is able to establish you spiritually, strengthen you, 
according to my gospel. So the gospel will strengthen us spiritually. And the preach, and now when he says in the preaching of Jesus Christ, uh, he's talking about uh, he's expl- he's explaining what he means by the gospel there, and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is all about. It's the proclamation about Jesus Christ and his death re- and resurrection, according or on the basis of the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret from long ages past, but now, during the church age, is manifested, and by the scriptures, or we could say, indeed. By the scriptures of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, the divine decree and eternity past, has been made known to all the nations, the nations referring to the Gentiles, leading to obedience of faith, or obedience that is produced by faith. So the only wise God, that's God the Father, meaning He's unique, through Jesus Christ we offer glory forever. Amen. So when He says through Jesus Christ... He, when he says glory, first of all, glory means that we're going to praise God. We're going to give Him worshipful thanksgiving and adoring praise. And how are we going to do that? Through Jesus Christ. We can only approach the Father in prayer and in worship through an intermediary who is Jesus Christ. Because of our union and identification with Him in His death, resurrection, and session, we can approach the Father in prayer to worship Him. And he says this will be forever. And then when he says amen, he says so it will be. He's saying it will come to pass that we'll give adoring praise and worshipful thanksgiving to the Father through Jesus Christ for all eternity. Let's close in prayer. We'll pick this up tomorrow, uh, uh, same time. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge us with the things that we've heard, instruct us in righteousness, rebuke us if necessary, guide us and direct us to further study in your word, and inspire us, Father, to go forward in your plan, become more serious students of the word of God. And, and learning more about who and what you are and what you've done for us and will do for us in the future and are doing for us now through your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit. We pray that the fellowship would be guided and directed by the Holy Spirit and powered by the Holy Spirit after service and give us traveling mercies on the way home. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone.